This week on the show, we covered a new architecture on the block, RISC-V, the OpenBSD on Vortex 86DX CPU running, uh, lots of releases we'll cover and what's new in there, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 425, Releases Galore, recorded on the 6th of October 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup. That gives you the truly paranoid, but it gives you proper and secure backups. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to our episode that has a lot of stuff in it, uh, but it's tightly packed. So uh, here we start with headlines. As always, uh, we have an article from Clara Systems about RISC-V, the new architecture on the block. Yep. Uh, so it covers basics, like where did RISC come from? Uh, just like BSD, it was forged in the academic fires <laughs> at the University of California, Berkeley. And, you know, was working, a uh, professor was working on parallel computing laboratory uh, and needed an open source computing system that they could base their courses on and so on. And as a short three month project over summer, they started work on, you know, what would a, a good thing like this look like? Uh, and then more and more people joined the project. And eventually they came up with uh, the name Risk 5 uh, or the reduced instruction set ISA because uh, this will be the, the fifth different risk project that they had worked on. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> uh, so in a short paper entitled Instruction Sets Should Be Free, the case for RISC-V, they outlined why they thought it was necessary to create a new instruction set architecture, or ISA. They said that having a viable, freely open ISA would enable free, uh, real free open markets for processor design, which the patents on ISA quirks currently prevent. An open source ISA would lead to greater innovation uh, by a free market competition and shorter time to market due to the shared open core design and processors becoming affordable for especially some of these smaller devices or devices that need a slightly customized processor. You don't have to build the whole thing from scratch. Uh, so the RISC-V specification was published in 2011 and put in the public domain. Uh, later, the actual tech report text, uh, which is an expression of the specification, was released under a Creative Commons license to allow for improvements. And then the RISC-V Foundation was created in 2015 to build an open collaborative community of software and hardware innovators based on the RISC-V ISA. Then it talks a bit about how RISC-V is different, including the licensing, uh, meaning that you know, RISC-V is, uh, is free from limitations of licensing. Anyone can use the ISA without any license or royalty fees. In addition, users can easily add custom instructions uh, for specialized functions such as machine learning or security. It also means that the designs can be scaled to meet different needs, whether you need a 16-bit chip for an embedded system or a 128-bit uh, supercomputer. You know, one of the big differences is being a risk architecture like ARM. Uh, it has uh, a much smaller instruction set compared to the AMD 64 x86 stuff that uh, a lot of us are used to. You know, if you printed the manual for x86, it'd be about 5,000 pages and doesn't include a lot of the extensions, although there's no exact number of those. You know, there's figured to be at least 2,500 instructions for x86, which can be a bit unwieldy, whereas v 7 only has 600 instructions. Yeah, reduced. Uh, and they talk about how um, RISC-V 
can, uh, because it's new from the ground up, it has this opportunity to do security right and, you know, have the benefit of up-to-date knowledge about where security problems come from and, like, how did Spectre Meltdown happen and how can we build protection against that type of thing into the CPU from the beginning. And then importantly, RISC-V has support in FreeBSD. So even though RISC-V is relatively new and there's not many hardware makers that support it yet, it is supported by FreeBSD. So support for RISC-V was introduced in FreeBSD 11 as a tier three, but as of FreeBSD 13, RISC-V has been promoted to tier two. Uh, and as more and more capable hardware becomes available, it shouldn't take too long before it becomes tier one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's gaining popularity. And uh, the more hardware is available, the more likely it is that people will start using it and want to make operating systems support as well. Cool, nice article introducing the platform. And then next, uh, oh yeah, a little mention from our uh, director, uh, JT. He, If you want to know more about RISC-V, check out his interview uh, with Mark Himmelstein, the CTO of RISC-V International on opensourcevoices.org. Okay, next up we have OpenBSD on the Vortex 86DX CPU. What is this, I hear you ask? Well. Here it goes. This is the OpenBSD counterpart of uh, the article from the author, which is Frederick Cambus, about running NetBSD on the Vortex 86DX CPU. And its purpose is mostly to archive the dmessage entry and various benchmarks for this machine. He wants to note that uh, with only 256 megabytes of RAM, the machine is too constrained to do kernel and libraries relinking in a timely manner uh, due to swapping. Yeah, that's probably really bad there. Yeah. So. Uh for those that aren't aware, one of the things OpenBSD does as a uh, exploit mitigation is randomly relinking the kernel and the libraries in every boot, so that between every boot, your the offsets for where things are in memory will always be different. Mm. Um, but that does require having enough memory to run the linker over all that stuff every time, and with a very small amount of memory, that's going to be different. Mm. Yeah. So uh, if you want to know more about the background and hardware, uh, he refers us to the other article he writes, and that's linked from uh, our show notes here from this article yeah, as well. Yeah, we've covered the, this hardware a bit uh, in the past. Yeah. We hadn't heard of it originally when he was working on the, the NetBSD bits for it. <laughs> yeah. So he provides us the results of the MD5-T and SHA1-T benchmarks. So these are the time trials to see how much you know CPU power this has or processing power and yeah, they also have the the full open ssl speed output uh, available as a link mm -hmm. as a reference and the full dmessage output from start to finish so detecting all the devices that are there and what's supported and uh, last the pci device data from the pci dump some usb and usb2 interfaces and ethernet mm -hmm. that's something you can start uh, doing some work on that okay great Good to know that it's uh, readily supported. And here comes our big news roundup this week. Big in terms of we have a lot of stuff to cover and it's all based around updated software and new releases. Uh, starting with Lumina 1.61 that has been released and the release notes read yes the project is still alive that's good to know already 
And in fact, there has been a, there has been a release. Yeah, great. So it's only been 611 days. That's not too long, right? Uh, anyway, they write onto the point. Yes, the project is still alive and there's been some updates. That's good to know. The release encompasses two main things. First, a collection of minor fixes that have gone to master since 1.6.0 came out, along with some translation updates. This includes two small additional binaries for use by the desktop. And the second is the downstream theme work that we did for Project Trident is now in Lumina as the default theme. There's also Node 2 packagers. Uh, as of this version, there's an additional dependency to the La Capitaine icon theme. The fallback old Google material design icon themes are still included for the operating systems and distros without a package for La Capitaine. I guess that's how you pronounce it. However, we are planning on eventually removing them at some point in the future. And there's extra information linked there in the readme okay good to know that lumina is still kicking and then uh, over to OpenSense, they have their 21.7 uh point next point release this feature brings in suricata version 6 as well as the new openvpn tls crypt support uh as well and automatic user creation on ldap based logins and more as a general note the real tech vendor driver currently bundled with the base system will be removed or will be moved instead to a plugin-based kernel module starting in uh, OpenSense 22.1 and the original RE4 uh, driver uh, that's built into FreeBSD 13 will be restored. To ease uh, migration and because of the versions maintained in FreeBSD ports actually offer additional fixes, they've uh, been included in a new plugin. Uh, so like they mentioned, the system now automatically creates users based on LDAP logins, they add and use a unified function is interface designed when doing the, their graphical interface. They've uh, clarified some of the match and set priority rules in their uh, firewall code. Uh, they've also added a, a progress bar to show the uh, maximum entries in their aliases uh, part in the firewall. Um, improved CARP status uh, stuff in OpenVPN as well as the TLS crypt support. Um, and then they've also removed the, uh, RDNS lifetime, uh, router advertisement bounds. And then a bunch of plugins got updated. Acme client is, uh, 3.1, Crony 1.4, Collecti 1.4, Fetchmail 1.1, FreeRadius 1.9.16, um, the real technique driver, like they mentioned at the top, uh, Telegraph 1.12.1. And updated the DNS mask, filter log, NSS, uh, PCRE, Python 3.8, sudo uh, Suricata 6, and uh, the latest syslogng. Oh, cool. So, a bunch of uh, updates in the latest version of OpenSense. Mm -hmm. They always close with stay safe. That's <laughs> probably multiple mentions in this case. But yeah, good to have updates. LibreSSL patches are also available on, uh, that's the link on bsdsec.net, the that simple BSD security advisories and announcements page. Uh, so here they have the errata from September 27. Uh, an errata patch for LibreSSL has been released for OpenBSD 6.8 and OpenBSD 6.9. Uh, stack overread uh, could occur when checking X509 name constraints. The binary updates for the AMD64, i386 and ARM64 platforms are available via the syspatch utility and source code patches can be found on the respective errata page on openbsd.org. Yep. Uh, there's also another errata that, that fixes or deals with the expiry of the um, DST root X3 certificate, which I think is uh, one of the roots for the, the expired root for OpenSSL. Uh, they had to add 
a flag to the verify function to flag trusted first so that if there's more than one if a certificate is cross-signed with two authorities as long as one of them is trusted that's good enough um i know that uh that open ssl bug has bit me before as well yeah so that's fixed and gone if you do the update very good and now to open bgpd 7.2 so I would like to refer to Michael W. Lucas's uh, mention on Twitter the other day to the uh, Facebook debacle calling that October uh, 4th should be, uh, what's it called, BGPD Awareness Month. Um, <laughs> um, but this one is not related to that. So this is the new, new version of OpenBGPD 7.2. And the release notes or the, yeah, it's the release notes, not the commit message. The release notes have... Uh, we have released OpenBGPD 7.2, which will be arriving in the OpenBGPD directory of your local OpenBSD mirror soon. This release includes the following changes to the previous release. Support for RFC 9072, extended optional parameters length for BGP open message. Support for RFC 8050, MRT format with BGP additional path extensions. It also implements receive side of RFC 7911, which is advertisement of multiple paths in BGP. OpenBGPD is currently not able to send multiple paths out. But it can receive them. Yeah. It improves the checks of VRPs loaded with RTR or, or from the ROA-set table and allows to optionally specify an expiry time for ROA-set entries to mitigate the BGP route decision-making based on the outdated RPKI data. OpenBGP's companion RPKI-client produces ROA-sets with the new expires properly or property open bgpd yeah so that's for uh the signing stuff for bgp so that uh, we can also prevent bgp problems caused by people advertising routes for addresses they don't actually own mm. okay the portable version of open bgpd is known to compile and run on freebsd and the linux distributions alpine debian fedora red hat enterprise linux or centos and ubuntu uh, it is our hope that packages or packagers take interest and help adapt OpenBSD or OpenBGPD portable to more distributions. And uh, they welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community. Thanks to all the contributors who helped make this release possible. Yeah, it's it's good to have this, uh, especially this week um, where BGPD uh, was. Uh, it's somehow involved in a certain outage. We're not going into this. There's another uh, podcast, uh, two and a half admins that will probably at length talk about this <laughs> or has by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> All right, I have the new release of Midnight BSD. So Midnight BSD 2.1 is now available for AMD64 and i36. This is an incremental release focusing on bug fixes uh, and includes updates to LLVM and imports. So you can use imports uh, to do your update, and I have instructions in the post here. The majority of improvements come from the Midnight BSD Package Manager import. A number of long-standing bugs have been fixed. They can now update dependencies properly on install, update, and upgrade uh, scenarios. Previously, uh, it would sometimes crash and force the user to do these manually. Uh, several fixes also made around the plist processing. Uh, import now sets a character encoding so that extracting files with libarchive with special characters is more likely to work without uh, having a crash occur. Specifically, lang slash go was a common trigger for that bug. Uh, and 
libimport no longer relies on libdispatch. This is a slower in a few scenarios, but most invocations are now faster as it doesn't need to set up a thread pool and do all the extra locking. They also generate an os-release file on system startup and put it in var run uh, so that tools that check for that can uh, see what OS they're running on. They also fixed issues where looking at some man pages would cause man to crash. Ooh, that's bad. Uh, and they also fixed the first boot script was corrected because it was referencing some invalid package names. Uh, they've also removed the burn CD utility because I don't know that anybody's had to burn a CD in a while. Mm. Um, they also have some security fixes uh, like the Apache uh, portable runtime had a CVE that they fixed. And uh, certain Vertio-based uh, device models failed to handle errors when fetching I/O descriptors, uh, and they also fixed uh, G8C did not validate the size of a response before writing it to a fixed size buffer, which allowed uh, an overwrite of the stack in the user space side of the daemon. And then uh, third-party software updates: newer version of Mandoc, which probably solved the man crashing problem. Newer subversion: the file command. Uh, SQLite, TZData, LibArchive, Unbound, Xed, OpenMP, etc. Uh, also added support for the SUME NIC driver, which is a 4 times 10 gigabit Ethernet driver, some JMicron AHCI SATA controllers, and also added uh, deprecation notices to some older drivers that are going away for, I think, like 10 gigabit Ethernet and so on. Uh, and also an EVDev fix so that if you unplug a USB mouse, it won't crash EVDev. Oh, yeah. Small things like that can really make your experience less uh, less perfect. So, and what happens at midnight? Well, some ghosts come out, and that's why we cover in the next item, the GhostBSD 21.9 ISO update. Uh, 21.9.29, more like. And yeah, changelog lets us know that this new ISO contains installer fixes, GPU auto configuration improvements, and software updates. So they improved xconfig, uh, improving the NVIDIA driver detection with the regular expressions. And GhostBSD ports has an update to multimedia slash VLC. They reduced the read size of the prefetch to improve SMB support. They also fixed a bug in the uh, uh, GBI, fixed custom FreeBSD-boot partition size. Okay. And provide, of course, instructions where to download and how to burn the ISO to a USB disk uh, to try it out on your next computer purchase. Oh yes, oh yeah. Uh, I've I've been preparing my lecture for the next semester, which is to start in, or probably has start by the time the uh, <laughs> this episode comes out. And we do it in VirtualBox, and we always have to fiddle with the graphics controller. And that's why this reminds me here: when installing to VirtualBox, make sure to change the graphics controller to VBox SVGA, because that doesn't make the X Arc uh, work probably uh, probably when it's not set to that value. So it's always head scratching why this happened in my experience. It's just this one setting that makes it not work or work if you have the proper one. Okay, so yeah, this is GhostBSD. And then we have Hello Systems version 0.6. And this has a bunch more updates. Release notes says that windows are now resizable at all edges. Uh, the windows snap to certain sizes when dragged to the edge of the screen, similar to, to the arrow snap. Bunch more desktop-related resize icons at the bottom right, properly centered window titles, animations on windows resizes, and such. But they also did some uh, tuning here, tuned kernel configuration for optimized sound. And uh, what else is there? Some interesting uh, bug fixes. Uh, applications in .app bundles that have a 
path with white space in it can now be properly pinned to the dock. Spaces and file names are evil, but people use them, so you got to make sure that you, you all your scripts and, and docs and yeah. so on are safe for it. Oh yeah, if you look at the screenshot uh, when you click on our show notes link, you will definitely see that they really try to recreate the Mac experience of old from the Aqua desktop days. Uh, yep, they have uh, a couple of things in the bug fixes section, also related mostly to the GUI and uh, couple of things to be verified. Non-networked HP printers should now work out of the box thanks to the HP lib package, but they haven't tested or couldn't have tested much. So maybe someone else can provide feedback on that. Uh, the infrastructure side has that they switched from OpenBox to the KWIN window manager and crudely worked around many Plasma desktop specific dependencies of the KWIN window manager. Okay. Uh, upstream efforts, someone else may be uh, wanting to help there. Hell desktop is the desktop environment used in Hello system. We would like to get it ported to FreeBSD. Experimental Hello Desktop ports and packages for FreeBSD are available for testing, and they provide links and instructions how to make the build, the build started to testing. Uh, they also list some known issues. They're currently using the latest rather than the quarterly packages in the hope that KF5 uh, dependencies will be fewer there to be revisited and likely reverted in the future. Ah, yes, I saw those. There's a couple of them. Uh, the mouse cursor is too small when the mouse hovers over the KWIN window decorations on HIDPI screens. Ah, okay. Uh, then another, the last one there in the known issues is Life Mode Boot Slow. Needs 4 gigabytes and more of memory. Okay. Yeah, that's the Hello Systems part. And so these were all the updates that we have on, on the software side in our news roundup this week. Yep, lots of stuff happening. Which is good. I mean, sees not only that the, the distributions are alive, but also that um, software packages that a lot of people use, like LibreSSL or uh, OpenBGPD, are also maintained and people can get updates for it for bugs and improvements. And thanks this week to Tarsnap for making BSD now possible. Head over to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow and get started. All you have to do is create an account. All it wants is an email address to notify you and then uh, put in some money. Because it's pay-as-you-go, you put in your money and then you use up the backups until you run out of money. So it means you can never get a surprise bill because you can't spend more money than you've already put into it, uh, which really helps with uh, controlling your budget uh, for this type of work. Uh, you know, it's too easy with a cloud storage to accidentally spend a lot more money than you intended, and Tarstop makes that impossible. But what it does make possible is making a secure backup without a lot of headache. So what Tarsnap does is gather up the files you would like to backup, segment and deduplicate them to make something as a small package as possible, uh, knowing what it's already backed up and uh, what needs to be freshly backed up. It uses a special segmentation and deduplication algorithm that Colin invented. Uh, so rather than a fixed block size, it actually finds the uh, like logical block size of each file. So different types of files that have different block sizes will deduplicate differently. And it finds basically the smallest possible diff uh, between the files, reducing what you have to upload, making it very convenient for uh, you know Road Warrior laptop. I need to be able to do a backup while I'm not at home on my fast internet, I'm at a coffee shop or at a conference or whatever. Not that anybody can go to either of those <laughs> at the moment, but you get the idea. And so it gives you uh, a lot of the capabilities you need and in a way that is secure because after it makes 
whittles down the backup to the smallest amount of data that you need to send up to the server. Uh, after compressing it, it then encrypts and signs it. Uh, and so everything that leaves your machine is encrypted and signed with a key that only you have. The people at Tarsnap don't have any access to that data. So if you lose the key, they can't help you. No one can. Your data is gone. But that's a feature. Because with backup to the cloud, the most difficult thing is being able to delete something. Because uh, sure, you can mark it as deleted and they'll stop charging you for it and they'll maybe have deleted it. But backups of backups and, and the way Flash works and so on, who knows for sure your data is truly gone. But if it was all encrypted with a key and you've destroyed the key, there's no way to decrypt it. So it doesn't really matter if it's gone or not. It's inaccessible. So just take good care of the key and Tarsnap will take good care of your data. Yeah, we're happy users ourselves. So that's why we praise it so often and so much. Uh, let's jump right into the feedback and questions sections. People can send us questions to feedback at bsdnow.tv and these people that we're covering here and now uh, have done that in the past. And so now it's their turn to get their questions answered. The first one is Brandon with a FreeBSD question. Brandon writes, uh, could you offer me some advice on how to educate myself on the more difficult to understand personal slash organizational uses for FreeBSD? You guys talk a lot about stuff on your show that I don't understand the purpose of or have never heard of. It seems everybody that uses FreeBSD has a lot of reasons to use it that aren't for administrating some enterprise network or development, which is what I want to have. The gist is really, uh, I love learning about FreeBSD, but I've gotten stuck. The only actual uses I've been able to find that I understand are for I2P slash Tor, surfing the internet, and storage pretty much. A while ago, I decided I wanted to get involved with computers, so I went searching for something other than Windows and found FreeBSD, since it looked like something that would require me to learn a lot, of, uh, a lot to use. I've read the handbook and a couple of Michael W. Lucas books and have asked many questions on the forums. I've become more familiar with configuration files, the scripts, visual, uh, virtualization, and a few a few other things. I can set up a firewall and ZFS and almost have a mail server and custom kernel working. Uh, I tried Pujuriere, but I think I don't just have enough good enough processor power to get anything done. Uh, I'm really interested in networking and security, but I find it very confusing when it comes to why I would use any of this stuff if I'm just using a personal computer. I'm enrolled in Unity College for computer science and have thought about getting certifications, but I don't know if this will help me understand all the stuff on your podcast. Please help. Thanks. So first of all, the, the stuff that you're learning is good and the approach you're taking is uh, also good, I think. You're getting a lot of uh, this this approach. Yeah, it really depends on your use case. You know, If you want to do development, FreeBSD is a very nice environment for that because it has a very nice toolchain already available, but also support for installing other toolchains from the packages and you know, having multiple versions of GCC, you know, one of the big advantages to the way FreeBSD does ports and packages is unlike on most Linux distros, it's possible to install three different versions of GCC and three different versions of LLVM Clang at the same time. Uh, and you just change an environment variable for what CC is and suddenly your code will compile with a different compiler uh, and you can more easily see, you know, how does GCC seven versus 10 affect my project or, you know, clang 10, 11 versus 12 and so on. Yeah. And the things we cover sometimes are very developer centric or very deep into the innards of the operating system. So that's perfectly normal to not understand every detail of it. Um, but I think if you keep listening and you later on 
you know, come upon these things and then remember, ah, that was what they talked about in, you know, a couple episodes ago or whatever it was, you, you still start building little, you know, bridges between the topics. And then, you know, you know, does that belong into development? Is it more uh, kernel related or user land? And so slowly you will get into uh, the, the topics. And I mean, we didn't start off knowing everything, right? We also had to learn a lot. Right. Like, uh, I got started with FreeBSD because I wanted to run an IRC server and I needed, so I learned basically how to start a program in a shell and then disconnect mm. from the shell and have the program stay running. And then I could connect to it. And so basically it was a way to get a static IP address and something that would stay running even when my computer was turned off. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned an interest in networking and a bit of security. Probably one of the most interesting things about using FreeBSD on, on a personal computer is being able to do VNet. Oh yeah. Uh, basically, have multiple separate network stacks on your computer, and be able to uh, whether that's for you know running a VPN in a jail, or even if it's just I need to simulate a network where I have these four hosts, and you can make each of them a jail uh, with its own VNet, its own complete network stack, and then via the ePair interfaces that hang out of those, you can control how data is routed between them and so on. Uh, you can also run separate instances of firewalls in each one, so that you can. Uh, basically do something like you would do with a bunch of vms but without the overhead of the vm mm. uh, right you know all you don't have to give each uh vm so much of your memory you can just say each of them takes uh what memory it needs from the host system and it all managed nicely uh, and it also provides more observability um, because of the way jails work if you're on the host you can see inside each jail and see what they're doing you can see all all the jails at once instead of having to flip between different mm. VMs and so on. Uh, so there's an article on the Clara website that Tom Jones wrote about using um, VNets and VLANs and so on together to simulate really complicated networks and then using dummy net to do traffic shaping and so on. So that's uh, really interesting stuff you can do. You know, when I took networking at community college, uh, I was, you know, would have killed to be able to simulate four completely separate computers inside my computer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> VMs uh, were not accelerated at the time, so any VM was like super slow. Mm. Uh, and you know, a gig of RAM was a lot. Yeah, and I mean, there's also stuff coming up that's new, that's new for everyone, and so everyone has to learn. Uh, talking about the certifications, they're usually good to demonstrate to a future employer that you know a certain topic, not necessarily that you um, are very deep into it, but mostly know what it's going to do. Depends on the level of certification, of course. Um, but it's not for, hey, I, I just take this uh, certification and I know everything about, for example, the BSDs. Uh, that's more for the people who know already and want to demanstrate their knowledge uh, to a, an employer to increase their chances of being hired. So I would recommend you would um, do the certifications a little bit later once you have a certain level of proficiency with the, with the BSDs or with the tools. Uh, yeah, what else? Uh, if anyone else has topics or has been in a similar situation is now, uh, you know, in a BSD job or is doing much more with, with BSD than they originally intended or <laughs> had thought of, then let us know. We can always link to this message and provide further tips and hints. Definitely check out the forums. There's also a lot of people helping there and asking questions there is always uh, receiving an open ear and giving you uh, answers to continue go on irc that's more direct feedback and uh, yeah i think you're definitely the approach you're taking with the books with the asking questions with trying out things reading the handbook that's a good start you can 
always get ahead with that. Cool. So thanks for your question. And let's look at what the next person, which is Bruce, has for us. Bruce has a question about fixing a weird Apache bug. So Bruce writes us, hi, not sure what I should go to suggest a bug fix about a weird Apache 2.4 reload issue. Well, why not? On FreeBSD 12.2, servers that run Apache 2.4 recently noticed Apache 2.4 kept crashing when we tried to do a service Apache 2.4 reload. It would core dump, and the only thing you could do is to restart it, which got it going again. But the next time you tried a reload, it would crash again. We reloaded twice a day uh, in cron after updating Let's Encrypt certificates. Okay. We thought there is some issue with shared memory that caused the core dumps. This happened to, on multiple servers after an upgrade to a newer version of PHP 7.4 upcache. Uh, we had to disable the upcache as the workaround. So the workaround he provides uh, to allow. Uh, so we edit the... He's putting upcode or upcache.nable yeah. equals zero in the, in the use local ATC PHP something to INI. Mm -hmm. Huh, that's interesting. Oh, and he provides some extra, uh, uh, you know, you name output and uh, versions of software and debugger info. Um, yeah, you'd have to get it with um, the debug symbols in order to make the debugger output of basically any use there. I don't see an obvious problem in the debugger output, but... Could we detrace that maybe? Um, well, detrace doesn't help when the program's crashing. Right, right. Uh, then it's already too late. It left memory. <laughs> I thought it would be uh, an approach. And, and again, uh, if you don't have the CTF data, then you can't really figure out what's going on. And that's right. what you have to do. And then once you have that data built in, then your core file will tell you the answer. Dirt right away uh, anyway. from reading it. Yeah. Um. um I've not had problems with that particular one. I remember having problems where at the, I think it was Recode or Readline, one of the other PHP modules that would always make the, I think the command line version of it crash. Um, and so we stopped using, but the opcode cache, it was working for me, although I'm using the PHP FPM version, not the built into Apache version. Ah, you're using it on Nginx? So I don't know if there's something special about the way it's being compiled into libphp or what. Um, Could be. It also might be fixed by just uh getting to you know 7.4.23 yeah or I'd... or actually that's uh actually i noticed in your output here actually that you have php 7.4.23 but your mod php is 7.4.22 i don't know right what's there in there but you might just try a package upgrade dash f and it will uh force reinstall some even the packages doesn't think have changed and that might help you get uh Make sure all your PHP packages are actually the same version, because uh, mixing them can be unhappy. Yeah. Or check the FreeBSD uh, bug tracker if someone else has encountered this before. Or the FreeBSD forums could also be a way to get the solution to this. And if there's no bug report yet, then, well, you have <laughs> most of the info here already. So this could uh, also help you. Cool. Thanks for asking this question. And the last one is from Dan. Uh, ZFS question. Ah, yes. Here we go. Uh, Dan writes, Hello. This is a simple question with what I think probably has a simple answer. Well, we'll see. There are many guides on the internet that show you how to use ZFS's snapshot, send and receive to backup, copy or move datasets and volumes. The one area that always throws me off is the lowercase dash r and uppercase dash r flags. Some instructions use lowercase r when taking a snapshot and others do not. 
some issue with uppercase. Okay, so we'll start, we'll yeah. start with that first. Um, so yeah, when you do a ZFS snapshot, you put ZFS snapshot dataset at snapshot name, and it will create a snapshot of that dataset at that time with that name. If you use the dash R flag, it will do a snapshot of that dataset and each of its children. So if you have, you know, your dataset pool name slash home and pool name slash home slash Benedict, if you snapshot pool name slash home at now, uh, then it will create a snapshot of the home, the root home directory, but not of the Benedict directory. Whereas if you do dash R, it'll do home and everything underneath home. Recursively. Uh, so you'll get the same snapshot, uh, a snapshot created at the same time on all of the child data sets and the parent. So that's why you want to use, almost always you want to use the dash R when you're taking a snapshot, because you want everything from this point down the tree. Yeah. Uh, for ZFS send, it's different. There's a capital R flag, which partly means take, you know, I want to send this data set of this snapshot and all of its children. But the capital R implies a couple other things as well. It means I also want to copy all the properties for these data sets. Uh, and I want to keep the clone relationships for these data sets and a couple other things. Um, if you're on FreeBSD 13, the ZFS-send man page is much better now. And so instead of one giant man page that tries to cover everything, mm. um, in FreeBSD 13 and later, the ZFS man page is broken up into each subcommand having its own man page. And it makes it much easier to find this kind of information. Yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah, so the dash capital R means send a replication stream, which basically means I want to send this data set and everything under it, and I want to keep all of its properties and, and its clones and all that relationships together as one thing, versus without the capital R means I want to send this one data set and not anything else. Ah, okay. uh, so yeah, snapshot with dash R uh, recursive means I want a snapshot of this data set and everything under it. And then replication with capital R means I want a replication stream. I want to send not just the one data set, but this and everything about it and everything under it. Mm. You could probably also read the good description in the ZFS mastery book about that switch or these switches. Um, honestly, I don't know that we spent that much time talking about capital R. <laughs> you don't? Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think of it. Uh, okay. <laughs> Well, then, yeah, it's the man page. Do we, do we have something on the handbook, actually, about this? Okay. Um, Where's my to-do list? Not, I don't know that we really get into the difference between... The sending flags. Capital R and not capital R. Yeah. But, like the man page says, this will generate a replication stream package. Uh, so rather than replicating the one file system, it, uh, the replication stream package will produce... Uh, or replicate the specified file system and all of its descendant file systems up to the name snapshot. Uh, when received, all properties, snapshots, descendant file systems, and clones will be preserved. So normal send will send a data set and a snapshot. A capital R one will be everything up to that snapshot on that data set and all of its children and all of its properties and all of its clones. That means, you know, I want to copy this entire thing rather than just one data set. I want to copy like everything about this pool at this point uh, to the other side. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully. And there is no small lower. There's no lowercase r in ZFS set. Ah, so there's no. Uh, yeah, you can't get it wrong there. But there is an uppercase. There's also no uppercase at ZFS snapshots, right? There's only lowercase. Right. Because uh, yeah. there's you don't snapshot properties and so yeah. on. Yeah. So <laughs> 
just dash that's army. already uh, so yeah off. almost everywhere dash r means recursive and that's why uh instead of ascend it's not dash r it's capital r because it doesn't actually mean recursive it means everything mm. uh you know it includes copy all the properties and copy all the clones or like keep the clone relationships normally when you uh zfs send a clone it makes it into a regular file system on the other side it's no longer a clone mm. but with capital r you can copy the original and the clone and have them keep their clone relationship on the other side ah uh, yeah so really everything. that wasn't possible manually before now with zfs send you can use dash o i think to set an origin and you can actually individually send just a clone as long as you have the parent on the other side at the same step shot uh. but that's confusing people not answering <laughs> yeah so anyway uh yeah dash r in snapshot means recursive it means rather than snapshotting just this data set do this data set and every other data set under it and then for replication the capital r means rather than sending just this one data set at the one snapshot i want to send every snapshot up to that snapshot for this data set and all of his children and i want to copy all of the properties and all of the clones and it just means send everything yeah just be on the safe side include everything and that's the difference cool then uh, hopefully your backups will always be complete and uh, have the proper checksum and the proper flag of course <laughs> when sending those so, so thanks for that question and that uh, ends our episode for this week not before we should mention that you have the chance to interview us with a special episode when we have enough of those questions uh, send your questions that we always want to answer us for uh, uh, JT, TJ, Alan and myself uh, send those to feedback at BSCNAUDO.TV so if you have enough questions like this like hey, what kind of breakfast did you have this morning or <laughs> whatever it is. Um, then we can co compile this into a special Christmas episode, for example, or one that is around, I don't know, that time frame. If we have enough, then we'll create such a show and then we have something special for the holidays. Cool. So thanks for listening and uh, till next week. Yeah, see you next time.